0: Reporting on climate and environmental issues in Florida might sound like a depressing job given the havoc our so-called leaders in government and industry wreak on our sensitive ecosystems on a daily basis, and the tone of a lot of such reporting is pretty ominous, even apocalyptic. Just scanning the headlines on issues like sea level rise, pollution, or invasive species threats will tell you that. Jenny Stiletovic of WLRN in Miami, and formerly of the Miami Herald, has been on the environmental beat in South Florida for decades, and as a native Floridian, she takes it personally when native habitats are harmed. But as passionate as she is about these issues, she is also a professional journalist and her thorough, objective reporting forms an ongoing narrative on these precious habitat struggles. She joins me today to discuss her sense of the progress we've made in Florida on environmental issues and her career in journalism in general. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. I'm here with Jenny Stiletovich, environment reporter for WLRN in Miami. It's 91.3 on your FM dial, as they used to say. Formerly of the Miami Herald, and her work has been a touchstone for me as I've explored media representations of climate change and ecological crises. Uh, My work, though, often involves analyses of some of the silliest post-apocalyptic or animal attack movies and novels that you'll ever encounter, whereas Jenny produces some of the crispest and most informative and poignant records of our ongoing environmental challenges. So there's definitely marked differences, but uh, (laughs) welcome to the Florida Book Club, Jenny.
1: (laughs) Thank you, and thank you for calling my my reporting crisp. <laughs> no, no,
0: no, it really is. I I really appreciate your tone in a lot of these pieces, and uh, my family loved the the uh, the video and the story from January about the dolphin rescue. So uh, I'll I'll just throw that out there. Right. Away. Okay. Our, our listeners can uh, can look that one up. Anyway, so uh, you write and report for WLRN now, and I'm just sort of curious where uh, your journalism career has taken you to end up where you are and how you became interested in reporting on environmental issues.
1: Well, so it's interesting. I started out as a cops reporter um, many, many years ago, more decades than I want to tell. (laughs) And I actually uh, was working part time because I we have three kids. And so I was trying to balance like kids and work and started freelancing for The Herald and was doing a series of stories about coal aspects ash pollution from these old uh, smoke smokestacks around Miami. Um, and back then in the you know 60s, 70s, so actually not that long ago, they would just bury the ash on public land. Um, and then over time, those public lands became parks. And rather than remove the ash, they just covered it with grass. Um, and so uh, uh, the, over time, you know, this, this became a problem. So I started out reporting on that. And the Herald's longtime, very good environmental reporter, Curtis Morgan, um, was moving into editing. So the, so the environmental spot opened up. I had only done these, these uh, shoot these stories, a couple of general assignment stories on, on environmental issues when I was at the Post. But, um, but when that job opened up, I, I, I took it. Um, and, and that was sort of my, my beginning of this, you know, really great but very frustrating um, coverage <laughs> in Florida.
0: I got you. So, I mean, did this become like a passion or a real interest? I mean, it, as it's, you know, become more of your your. I guess I'll use the word passion. I suppose I I, I would
1: say it did because I, you know, I I was born and raised in in Florida. I care very much about the state. Um, When you start covering the environment, you see just how messed up things are. Um, And 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 it is hard not, not to. Take it personally in a sense. I remember when I was mm-hmm. at the post, there was an environmental reporter named Bob King who was so so good, and I, I he would get you just see him hunched over his desk, getting like really you know frustrated and vexed over stories, and and now I get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it doesn't seem like the kind of beat you can <laughs> write about without you know some degree of of involvement or frustration or 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 you know drive, I guess, to to do that. It's not something I I think you can write about with a complete sense of objectivity. Although, like I said, you do a good job of maintaining a very level and objective tone in your work.
1: I try because as a professional, I realize that's my job.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious what what is your general take on the tone of a lot of climate change or invasive species or or environmental discourse? Not just, you know, in journalism, but I mean, I don't know if you pay attention to like fiction, film, or other arts or or media. I mean, to me, I feel like it's taken on this very urgent and dire and even apocalyptic feel. And and how do you try to approach these sorts of issues when you're writing a story or preparing for an interview? I mean, is it does your own Sense of it, like you're saying, with um, you know, your former colleagues. I mean, do do you do you feel a sense of frustration or or of of concern that you try not to let seep into your your reporting? Or I mean, is that hard to avoid?
1: Well, I I, so I think you're right. I think there is an an, an incredible increase in urgency. And I think that uh, part of that is driven by how much science is being done and generated on impacts from climate change. I mean, it's just gotten to the point where um, it's hard to ignore. And the again, the the research that's being done has gotten more fine tuned and more specific. Um, So just, you know, the facts are there. I mean, it's just you just can't ignore it. Um, What I try to do, though, is take a measured approach because i I've, I've just I've, again my background as a cops reporter crime reporter um and kind of a long time being a reporter is you can overwhelm people and you can you don't want to leave them paralyzed with fear. You know, yes. you want you want to give them a sense of like, you know, we this is fixable or doable or or, you know, somehow we can we can work our way through this. Um and 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 you have to you have to provide, I think, that that balance in the reporting that you do. You, you know, there is a sense of urgency, um, but but, you know, w- we are, we are, we have gotten our way out of things before, um, this, we're still trying to figure it out. I mean, it is scary. Um, so people need to be concerned, but they also need to, you know, keep trying to figure out how to fix it.
0: Yeah. Thanks. I'm I'm really ambivalent on that myself too. On the one hand, I, I, um, I'm looking at some of the recent headlines and by recent, I mean in the last five or 10 years, these are just from various, uh, Publications like uh, Nat Geo and Bay News Nine up here, but like invasive toad could kill your pet if you're not careful. <laughs> Tampa Bay now has an invasive clawed frog problem. Uh, slimy green beaches may be Florida's new normal. That one's fa- and, and and you know that's not even to mention like the creative media on this, like movies and novels and and pulpy kind of stories, which you know obviously you know you don't expect to be held to the same sort of standard. But I've, I I wonder exactly what you're saying. Like you know does that instill this kind of nihilistic fatalism in people or, or feel like you're saying, you know, I, am, um, you know, and it seems like you consider the effect that word choices and phrasing can have on your audience's perceptions. Like, you know, as I've said, these horror movie esque headlines about fire ants, toads, Zika carrying mosquitoes. And, you know, I wonder whether that does more to distort the issue than to raise genuine awareness. But, you know, at the same time, I think that that kind of unsettling and visceral rhetoric, I mean, it can maybe be motivating in a positive way. I mean, I am um, Jeff Vandermeer, you know, the the, the author who wrote yeah. Annihilation, he just published a piece recently in current affairs called The Annihilation of Florida that it uses really charged terms like murder of the natural world occurred in there pretty early. And and you know, it goes on, but but it also you know has links and it's been retweeted and 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 people have like used it as as sort of a, uh, uh, you know, basis to reach out to people to say, hey, sign this clean water petition or do this or something. So, I mean, I guess I, I kind of cringed a little at his word choices, but it, it, it but you're right. I mean, it can, I, I guess it can have a positive outcome regardless of that. Yeah. Like, you know, it can't, it doesn't, you know, these, these, this sort of rhetoric doesn't have to be, uh, you right. know, paralyzing people with fear, I guess. But I mean, I guess how conscious are you of that when you're when you're reporting or writing stories, like you said, because I know that that's kind of related to the last question. But I'm I'm wondering if there's any maybe specific instance where you really were trying to, you know, bring in your own emotional uh, reaction to some of these these events or issues and, and kind of, you know, rein that in and not let it spill over into your work.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes and with Jeff, I mean, it, it, you cover something long enough, it's it's hard sometimes to contain your frustration and your anger. And sometimes <laughs> it just bubbles up. Um, I also have, you know, sort of a fraught relationship between journalism and social media and what social media has done to journalism. So as I mm, was listening yeah. to you read some of those headlines, I was, you know, in my mind thinking. They sound very clickbait. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, and and so that's that's kind of the line we we straddle you know um when when I was at the Miami herald, we had uh, we had click, you know, page view goals that we we had to meet, um, and so I used to joke that I would subsidize my environmental coverage with Python stories because Python stories always got clicks. But if you're writing about Everglades restoration, people are like, "Hey, well, whatever," you know. <laughs> but 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 so so there's that. But then I also see like sometimes that terminology. I think it does if you. This may not be a good analogy, but think of it as kind of a gateway drug. Like if you can get people's attention by writing about, you know, creepy poisonous frogs and it brings them into the, you know, the world, they start reading about it. They start realizing. And if the story is done well, once you get past the, the headline um, that may be sensational, um, th- you can have a really great story that if people will actually click on it and read you know, and not just retweet, then then you've then you've accomplished something. Um so so I think it is definitely a balance that has to be struck. Um and I, depending on the story, my language changes and it may just be kind of a visceral reaction. But again, like when I'm writing about especially creepy crawly invasive species, it's very easy to go into that kind of rhetoric. Um, And so I try and tone it down because it is a real problem and you don't want people to just like write it off as, ah, you know, here's another crazy snake story. Um, But when you're writing a story or reporting a story, about a water quality issue, which is huge in Florida and it's complicated and it's hard, I think, for people sometimes to understand. Sometimes you use that language because you, if you use the technical words of, you know, um, you know, aneroxic, whatever, you know, conditions where there's no oxygen in water and it, it leads to a fish kill, that, that can, it can be, it's too dense for people to understand. Um, so I, so I try and, um, you know, make dry things interesting and, and create a narrative that, you know, it, the point, cause we're storytellers is always to have sort of a narrative arc. And sometimes that can be hard when you're explaining science, you know, and policy.
0: The gateway drug analogy is completely appropriate. I thought that was good. That was good. D- don't worry about that. I mean, I guess with the caveat that, like, you know, it's usually uh, people usually use that term pejoratively to refer to something that will lead you to harder drugs rather than you know increase your. Own. But other than that, no, it was good. I liked it. It's, it's, uh, it's the hook, you know that that. Yeah. I really liked how you said you subsidized your, your, you know, some of your other environmental reporting with Python stories. I'm sure uh, a lot of people could relate to that sort of thing. On other right.
1: And I really wish that, that sometimes people would care about, again, Everglades restoration, huge issue for not just Southeast Florida, but Southwest Florida. I mean, I mean, we are, how you look around South Florida and how much of the state is taken up by this huge restoration project that is going to help keep us here longer going to help keep our water fresh i mean all these things but but it is you know we, we before we started we were talking about how people keep on moving down here and the population keeps increasing increasing and putting um, a strain
0: on the yeah the
1: yeah yeah infrastructure but, but getting,
0: natural infrastructure yeah
1: yeah getting people to pay attention to that instead of pythons i mean getting writing the python stories and their invasion of the everglades i don't know that did so much good for Everglades attention to the Everglades, but it took like this invasive snake to do it.
0: No, well, I mean, you know, there's other, I I think, you know, like uh, a headline about how, you know, uh, Florida's lakes might be the most polluted or anything like that. Like, you know, for something like that, that, I think that gets attention. It's not, and it's not like something spectacular or, um, you know, how the coral reefs are imperiled. I think, um,
1: being the worst or the first, <laughs> you know, it always gets attention. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's like, you know, those are those are like you said issues about water quality and about, you know, how we're being good stewards of of our um, of our environment and our habitat. But uh, but you're right. They don't but they don't have the, the sort of spectacular qualities of uh, of, yeah, like, you know, really weird invasive species or pythons eating alligators or things like that. But it. But it does. But they are attention getters. You're right. I mean, more so than when and and people don't realize, you know, that like you're saying, these hearings like the ones you attended yesterday um, and, uh, you know, laws like, you know, how conservation money is spent. You're right. Those don't get clicks. Those don't really get those. You know, people tend to dismiss those maybe as more, you know, just mundane logistical affairs of of the government. But that's where these things start, uh, you know, too.
1: Right. I mean, and that is the challenge is trying to explain those connections because, right, it's Florida, everything is politics, policy, you know, it all comes, there's all you see the consequences on the ground, you stand Mm -hmm. around, you know, look out over Biscayne Bay and, and see like these huge mats of macro algae instead of beautiful seagrass meadows and that started somewhere and it started with a bad stormwater system it started with um a you know a developer you know allowing being allowed to build a neighborhood that has septic tanks instead of putting Mm -hmm. in the infrastructure for stormwater or sewer connections um but those are complicated and again it's some um, it takes a long time to kind of explain it since I've been switched to radio that's been you know kind of the challenges <laughs> I used to go to write like these endless stories and now I have to say it in a minute and a half
0: <laughs> well I wanted to ask what you personally uh, uh, think about whether we're making any progress on these issues or whether you feel personally encouraged about, are you optimistic about our ecological situation? And, you know, does that motivate you anyway in your reportage, you know, broadly speaking? I mean, I, you know, it, 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 you described, as I said, your, your former colleague, like getting so frustrated. And I imagine you must probably have moments like that, too. But overall, do you feel encouraged by any progress that we're making?
1: I mean, I do. I mean, you see more. I think the involvement, the number of activist groups down here, you know, since I even started as has there are a lot more people involved. Um, Sometimes I feel like just the state of politics in general has polarized people so much that it's hard to meet in the middle and, and get things done. The environment in Florida sometimes can tend to be that place though, where it's a little, it's a little more bipartisan, but then (laughs) the cynical skeptical side of me says, well, how much of that is greenwashing, you know, (laughs) Uh. Um, but, but I do, I see, I see progress. um, And I see the level of involvement as being um, a good thing. The challenge is it's Florida, More and more people, the more people we bring down here, the more we continue to build, the worse it is for the environment. And at some point, you know, we're going to have to have a come to Jesus moment and say, like, listen, either, you know, we're going to we're going to realize to fix this that we have to stop relying on our chief industry, which is growth, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or not. Um, And that is the, the, where I get deeply frustrated is the really hard choices are not being made.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, I was going to follow that up by asking, I mean, you kind of addressed this already, like what you, what your sense of the public's and the media's and local government's dedication to these issues are and, you know, whether Interest or or concern translates into votes, translates into you know donations or funding or volunteering or things like that. I mean, do do you feel and, and this is one thing where I'm I mean I, I'm kind of more aware of what it's like up here in Tampa Bay, but I mean in South Florida, it, do, do you think it's it's people are more dedicated? Is it more of a priority? Do you think or or I mean just. Maybe in specific terms, is there an area you could point out where you think, you know, a uh, uh, local government or local, the public is just more involved and aware and sort of united on any of these issues?
1: I, so, I think there's a segment of the public that's pretty involved. Um, and then I'm always amazed, like you you mentioned this meeting that I covered yesterday, which was to, Miami-Dade County has an urban development boundary that was created back in the early 80s to protect wetlands and farmland. There's always been pressure to expand that boundary. And so, yesterday was this day-long commission meeting because they wanted to move the boundary again. And I have to say, I was shocked by... County commissioners who have championed restoring Biscayne Bay going along with this this move to to move the boundary eastward toward the bay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and and so I the level of hypocrisy sometimes shocks me um, what I what I feel like happens is um People are it's easy to make sort of societal, you know, choices like, oh, yes, we need to cut carbon. We need to do these things. But when it comes to personal choices, those are harder. I don't know if I'm making the connection between. <laughs> yes, you are. Yeah, meeting yesterday and then what actually happens. But I, I just feel like um, it's easy to take a stand on something. But then when you when you when you look at your own personal choices and when I th- talk about hard choices, that's what I mean you know, that, that we are all going to have to make those choices. We're all going to have to decide like, um, you know, do we, do we live in a big house? Do we live in a small house? How many cars do we drive? Things like that. And I myself struggle with those choices. I have lived in a small house, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I just uh it's, it's it, I know it's hard, but we we're, are we're going to have to make those choices and to, I haven't quite answered your question, but uh, I see I probably pockets of um, people being sort of alert to environmental consequences and problems, and then I just walk into a meeting like yesterday, and I see it all go down the tubes, and I'm just like, "What? What happened? This this doesn't make sense."
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it kind of connects to what you're saying earlier. That you're right. I mean, people in principle and in philosophy. Can be opposed or or get behind something. But then you see these things like county commission meetings that are kind of to the general public, boring and procedural. But that's where they have to be. Changed. I mean, I was kind of curious how well attended the the meeting itself was like how many people like was it was it that big of a deal that people showed up and tried to, you know be in the hearing or offer testimony or anything. And thank you for explaining the meeting. I probably should have given more context when I mentioned it. But,
1: uh, no, well so yesterday was like a standing room only, you know. Crowd okay, so, the, so there was
0: interest. Yeah, yeah,
1: but probably. but you have to like look more closely at at who shows up. So this project has been winding through, you know, the system for more than a year. So the sides were fairly uh, evenly drawn and you had the developer who had rounded up a lot of support. And then you had the environmental coalition that had rounded up a lot of mm-hmm. support. And I don't think I saw anybody who was just like from the public. Um, and, oh. and I'm probably going to get I could catch a lot of flack for that um, because there were a lot of people who spoke who said, you know, I live in this neighborhood. Um, this is this is we need jobs down here. But the rhetoric that you were hearing was like they Man. were already
0: dedicated to one particular uh, yeah, angle, and it was- other cause or narrative. And
1: I think that the developer and that, that those, the people behind the project had been done a very good job of selling um, the, 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 this project to, to the public um, and, and said, this is going to be all about jobs. It was not the full, it was not all the information, you know, because it, mm-hmm. if they had really disclosed everything, you, you would have understood that they're talking about building an 800 acre fulfillment center east of the urban development boundary between the Turnpike and Biscayne Bay on farmland that is extremely vulnerable to flooding. A hurricane storm surge had Andrew hit today, that area would have been underwater, you know, and that's, and the county staff um, to their credit wrote more than a thousand pages you know, sort of outlining this. And and again, my, my sense of frustration was county commissioners who in other instances rely on their county staff and their expertise were grilling staff. And in one case, the director of the environmental um, department uh, just really got chastised. Like I've never seen anything like it before by a county commissioner who was saying, you know, this is you're telling me that a warehouse, that farms that pollute the bay are you know a warehouse district isn't better than that, and he was trying to explain the difference the complicated hydrology and the different uses, and she was having none of it and I was like clearly your mind's made up you know? Yeah, I, I <laughs> guess there's, there's, to ask questions. <laughs>
0: there's a lot of cynical reasons I suppose we could come yes. up with for why, you know, there <laughs> these commissioners may have uh, a pro growth mindset all of a sudden, but um, yeah,
1: I mean there, I yeah. guess when you say pro growth, that's it when that, that's a, in, in a nutshell is you still have a huge wave of pro growth, um, power and influence in South Florida and as much as environment and climate change has really gained traction, those two forces, I feel like one side still outpowers the other side.
0: Yeah. And it's sad that they've coalesced into distinct sides, sort of these diametric oppositions. uh,
1: And then there's also, you know, a little bit of a gray area too, where, um, where the development side is a little co-opted some of the climate stuff. So I see a lot of the resilience work as an effort to, it's really infrastructure. I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, it's not trying to improve the environment. It's trying, trying to better flood control so we can build more.
0: I am um, I'm kind of curious over the years, what have been some of your favorite stories or people or, or issues that you've reported on, like any interesting encounters or experiences? Just you've seen I mean, just to judge from your recent stories in the past couple of years, you've been out there on the ground, you know reporting on this. so I'm I'm curious what what sort of stood out as meaningful or memorable to you just in an experiential sense.
1: Well, just uh, as a, on a day-to-day basis, anytime I get invited out to do like field reporting and go out with like scientists or anybody,
0: (laughs) I'm I'm jealous when I hear about people
1: doing (laughs) it. If you're a fishing guide and you want to show me something out on the water, you know, don't even ask a second time. I'm there.
0: (laughs) Like you've already (laughs) got your life jacket on. Like I'm...
1: So some of the like the, some of the, the best trips I've taken um, where I went out with U.S. Geological Survey does a lot of python tracking. And again, pythons, you know, they get attention. But this.
0: Hey, but it was fun, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. And so we went out into Big Cypress um, with one of the rangers from from the preserve and waded into the I have never been that far into the swamps. And it 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 was shocking. It was not well. It was just the best experience ever. I mean, we were in chest deep water. Um, At one point, we passed an alligator nest and the the ranger who was with us was like, oh, it looks like an empty nest. You know, it's pretty cool. Come over here and look at it. And we're like, oh, that is cool. I've never seen like in the swamps because they build up these nests. So there are these giant like mounds. Um and so we I, there was four of us all together and the two two USGS scientists had big gotten a little bit further ahead and and you know we're sitting there looking at the nest and 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 one of the the women yells out like uh-oh I think that nest is occupied. <laughs> and there were a bunch of baby gators around and like so sort of oh, wow. through I mean it was you know one of those like sort of cool adrenaline but also just beautiful moments mm-hmm. um but uh, I've also done like I've uh, gone out into the Everglades with a with a crew that was monitoring peat collapse. Um, another complicated sort of topic that's <laughs> hugely important and hard to communicate. I don't know if you've ever tried to like walk out into to wetlands. It's, you know there's. <laughs> A couple not of as far of walk- as you
0: did.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, so it looks like it's the river of grass. You see this very flat area and you, and it looks, you know, inhospitable because you also realize that sawgrass is pretty sharp, mm-hmm. but I didn't, it didn't fully sink into me like what it would be like to try and walk through it. And so there's a you know few feet of muck that you sink into. And then below that is the, you know, the, ulite, the rock stone that's, old ocean bottom. So it's pocked with holes. So you can be kind of, you know, marching along through this muck and all of a sudden sink into a hole. Um, And at one point, one leg sunk into a hole, I could not get myself out. I mean, I was like oh, wow. up to my chest, my I was knee deep in this hole. And then, you know, up my thigh was the muck. And I'm just not strong enough. And like, thankfully I was with some pretty big researchers and one of them just like kind of came along and, and lifted me out. Um, but I afterwards I said to like the lead guy, I'm like, you don't come out here by yourself, do you? Cause you could get stuck, yeah. right? And he's like, oh no, 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 I never come out by myself. Um but that, but that's just like the experiential, sort of the fun stuff. Like topics wise, I mean, I water quality issues tend to be like the the thing that I obsess over the most. Um, and part of it is because I come up from a family that that loves the bay and loves to fish. My husband, you know, grew up fishing in Biscayne Bay and Florida Bay, and so I hear from him sort of firsthand accounts of how bad things, how much it's changed. You know, the fact mm-hmm. that there's You used to, when we started dating, you could go out in Biscayne Bay and see like these herds of bonefish kind of going across the flats. They're gone. You know, it's not, it's been 25 years and they're gone. Um, and that's a water quality issue. It's because the seagrass is gone. It's because there's pharmaceuticals in the water. I mean, it's all these things that near shore areas that we used to, you know, you didn't you you didn't have to spend a day getting out to something to find this wild environment, this crazy cool thing. You could, you know, take a quick boat ride, and that is getting harder and harder to find. And I'm rambling on a little bit, but my my no, daughter, please do. <laughs> My daughter is a junior in college and she takes after her dad and she's studying biology and marine science. And she, you know, as a kid, she used to like, just love wandering around behind her granddad's house, finding hermit crabs and the muddier, the hotter, the grosser, the better it was for her. And so now she's studying to be a marine biologist. And, you know, I think that's the kind of, that really When I'm embarrassed to admit this, but when I'm alone by myself thinking about stories, I think about her, you know, and I think about how much she loves it and how much it's made her who she is. And I just feel like, you know, if we don't, we have, we can't lose this, you know, we're just, we, we live in such a special place. It creates such special people and we just can't lose that.
0: That is a great note to close on. I think. <laughs> I,
1: wait, I <laughs> do want to ask you. i of like start getting too emotional and embarrassed. No, that was that yeah. was great. I am. Um,
0: I don't. I wondered if you've read uh, Karen Russell's. Uh, work. Uh, she's a Florida writer, but she wrote this great short story called The Gondoliers. It was published in 2019, but it's about uh, new Florida. It's many years in the future. The whole state is underwater. It's set near an area that used to be called Miami, but it's, uh, and it follows these kids who have grown up in the aftermath of this just living on these little islands or little bits of hammock that are still floating. And it's actually very curiously optimistic. It's it's really strange. It it, I, it made me think you the narrator is a young woman. Her older sisters are in their 20s. Their job is to like ferry people around like, t- you know, gondoliers basically yeah. from place to place. And uh, there was a huge seawall that failed and they weren't alive at the time. But that was when the ocean rolled across the state. And uh, it's really strange. There's a real divide in the story between like the older generation who remembers the the before time and these kids who grew up and like, what are they talking about? This is paradise. We love it. And it's, it's strange because it like, it was so different in tone than most of the things I read. And you I really started thinking about it when you were talking, you know, it's, uh, kind of has this point about like, yes, we've lost this, but look what we've gained, you know, to them. It's like, we basically live in the ocean almost. It's like, it's great to them. You know, they're constantly on the water. So yeah, no, I don't that, know. That,
1: that's so on the nose, you know, kids know what they know. Like we, yeah, I, the older I get, like the, <laughs> the more sad I get, but not, not my kids. They, they think it's great. So that, no, I will definitely read that. Cause that, that sounds like.
0: Just yeah, kind of I know. Of- I'm, I'm horrible, but like one of the things is strange, like I always with a lot of these talks that we have, I always get recommendations for nonfiction because I hardly I always just, you know, I'm immersed in like film and fiction and things like that. But I always get, you know, recommended to or diverted to or I end up reading these great nonfiction. works. So I, I always like try to throw some of these references here like, hey, this is a great work of literature that kind of talks about this. And I don't know if Karen Russell, she might not live in Florida anymore, but she always, she still writes about it quite a bit. So, uh,
1: I'm looking forward to reading it because it sounds like
0: it's in, it's in her short story collection, orange world, which is, uh, which is really good. A lot of fantasy and supernatural stuff, but that's a great story with some good environmental issues. So anyway, any projects you have in the works, what's coming down the road, where's your work going to take you in the near future?
1: Well, so I'm looking a lot at storm surge, (laughs) another cheerful, cheery subject. Um, I think about
0: it a lot. (laughs) sorry. Yep.
1: Yep. I mean, I think anybody who went through Irma in, in Florida and, you know, there was a storm that was bigger than the state, the, the, the days of, you know, sort of watching and, and anxiety. And then when it hit and the evacuations and the mess that was, um, and when you see these uh, projections for storm surge with sea rise, we're actually working with the hurricane center now who's modeled some, some, some future storm surge looking at Irma and I have to say it is alarming. Um, so that'll, that, that's going to take up a, a lot of time. And I think it's hugely important.
0: No, it should take up a lot of time. <laughs> it sounds like that's it's, it's Yeah. Um, I told a previous guest, uh, just on i i made all these preparations to ride out irma talk to the neighbors touch base and then we just got spooked and bolted like the day before it hit to north carolina so how long did you spend the like <laughs> you know what it was nuts. there was nobody there we literally yeah. left at about four in the morning the day before irma hit and i was i don't know i just the anxiety got to me and i was like let's go so you made me think about that but you know what was strange is that uh this person also talked about, and I remember this too—the camaraderie of people that brings people together too. Like checking on each other and saying, "Hey, I've got these supplies. I've got a chainsaw. I've got a generator. You know, we, you know, I'll see you on the other side, and we'll see what happens. And we'll, you know, if we need to dig out, we will." So that's kind of encouraging too. I think
1: it, it is. I always say that's like if there's anything that good that comes out, anything good that comes out of hurricanes is that you get to know your neighbors
0: <laughs> and <Yeah>. appreciate them. <laughs> Well, good luck on that project and with your work and we will continue to read and our our listeners can uh, see the link to your, your WLRN page on our website. So uh, Jenny Stiletovic, you're now a member of the Florida Book Club.
1: Well, thank you for having me. This is really fun. <laughs>
0: Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida Book Club. We have a link to Jenny's climate reporting work with WLRN on our website. If she sees progress and increased public involvement in environmental conservation, I think we should all be encouraged by that. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at our next meeting.